assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Susanna Payne. Please stand for the gospel reading. Found in Luke 24, 25 through 32. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to him, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. There's an old episode, Little House on the Prairie, where it's during Christmas time, and the pa is going out, and they're going to do some chores, and someone says, you better put the rope up. And what they mean by this is to put the rope up between the house and the barn so that when the snowstorm gets too crazy and the blizzard is too blinding, they'll have something that leads them home. I've been using this illustration each week to introduce this series that we're in, the series called The Sacred series, or just sacred, because one-word titles are cool like that. Um, but we're, that's, that's been kind of a, a central image for this series, because what we're doing as we talk about the sacred is we're trying to find the rope that ties us back home, the rope that reminds us of who we are as the people of God, the rope that says, yeah, this is our identity, this is who we are, this is what the church is about, this is what it means to be the people of God. And I was actually looking this week for an image of a rope between a house and a barn so I could just show it to you and not have to say this preamble every week, but I couldn't find one. So if you find one, email me this week, all right? But here we are, and we're talking about this because it's very, it's very important to, to maybe subvert this notion that f- the faith is our private faith. Now hear me on this. Faith is deeply personal. I think there is something about our personally affirming faith in Christ. And yet the faith is not private. That it actually comes to us through generation upon generation upon generation of followers of Jesus Christ. And they've passed things on to us that are like the trail of breadcrumbs in Hansel and Gretel, if you like, or the rope, if you prefer, in Little House in the Prairie, the rope that connects us back to home. And this is particularly important for all of us who are in this church, New Life Downtown, which is part of New Life Church, which in turn is a non-denominational church. So sometimes people can say non-denominational. That sounds really scary because we're just kind of free-floating 
I know, it is kind of scary. And so it's important for us to remind ourselves of how we connect with the whole story of the people of God, how we're part of the wider body of Christ. This is why from time to time in our service about once a month or so, we'll say the Nicene Creed. Because the creed is a thing that says, hey, this is the central confession of faith that every stream of the body of Christ, from Western Church to Eastern Orthodox Church, Catholic, Protestant, all across the board, we all affirm this creed. This is the thing we sort of cling to as we say, what do we believe and what things do we hold with an open hand that we can discuss? Well, one of the things, so the first week we talked about the Holy Spirit and we said, look, we can talk about all these ancient practices or sacred practices that keep us uh, connected, and yet if we don't start with the Holy Spirit, we're kind of missing something, aren't we? Because the church, the church's birthday is Pentecost. It's the day that the Spirit is poured out. It's the Spirit who is working and building the church. Thank God for that. It's not a person, it's not a strategy, it's not a business plan, it's the Spirit of God. And so we started there in week one, and then last week we talked about baptism and how baptism gives us a new identity and a new family. That really in the New Testament, justification and participation, our being made right and our being set in a family belongs together, and baptism is a picture of that. Now today we're going to talk about the Bible. Now we love the Bible. So you know, here's this nice big, is this a beautiful Bible? It was a gift to me last Christmas maybe, and it's, it's, it's a more expensive Bible than, than I would have ever bought for myself, but I have a dear friend who pastors in another city, and he thought I should have a really nice proper Bible because my iPad was not good enough, I guess. But, <laughs> so I have this really nice Bible, and, and, and I, I use it um, you know, from time to time, and um, I mean I have a, a lots of Bibles of course, but... But I, I suspect that I am like you and that in your home you have lots of Bibles and lots of Bibles. I mean, like bookshelves of Bibles. And yet, when you see some, you know, commercial or, or, or ad in a you know, Christian magazine for a new study Bible, you're tempted to get it because you're like, ooh, I have, I need to get the C.S. Lewis study Bible. Like, oh, no, 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 now there's the... I don't know, the whatever, you know, the worship God study. We've got Bibles galore. I mean, it's big business in America. And that has good and bad consequences. But the point is we all know we should love this book. And we all know there is something special about this book. And I could preach a sermon that would say to you, come on, church, let's be people of the book. And you would say, Amen. And I could throw out a whole bunch of cliches like, let's get back to what the Bible says. And I would have you in a frenzy. And I, I, I mean, I, I, could throw, I could throw cliche upon cliche. I could say, it doesn't matter what so-and-so says. What does the word say? And you'll be like, amen, brother, the word. What does the word say? And yet, if you're honest, we're scared of this book. Because we don't quite know what to do with this book. We're a little intimidated by this book. We've tried to read this book, and somewhere in some genealogy we've gotten lost. <laughs> or maybe some other awkward story of someone killing someone else's family. You think, okay, I just... Uh... I want to start by su suggesting that there's five ways that we often misread the Bible. 
And be a little lighthearted with this with me, if you, if you would. Please don't take offense, because I've found myself in a number of these five. But as a way of laughing at ourselves, shall we? The first one is this, that the Bible is a textbook. And this is where we read for information. God, after all, is a professor. And so this book is a book of information. Now, you know, there, there are in some, you know, sort of maybe um, more academic and, and perhaps uh, liberal in the sense of faith liberal, uh, where they don't, necess- they don't believe at all that, that Jesus really is the Son of God, but this is just a good ancient document. And so it's an ancient text to kind of analyze and say, well, I'll never do that. No, 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 we'll never do that. But this is how we treat the Bible like a textbook. It's when we say things like, I want to get back to biblical manhood. Okay? Which one is that? Is that Abraham running away in cowardice? Is that Moses rising up in anger and killing a guy? Which, which one is biblical manhood? Where is the section? Manhood, M, M. It's not organized in an index of subjects, is it? Like, okay, well, at least I need to know biblical marriage. Biblical marriage. The one where Jacob has two wives and fathers children with two more servants? No, no, not, not, not that one. <laughs> the one where David... His aunt, I don't know how many wives, but he's older now, and someone says, get him a young virgin to lie in bed with him so he can stay warm. Oh my God, what, that's in the Bible? (laughs) I'm looking for biblical marriage, people. It's not a textbook. Secondly, we say, well, well, maybe the Bible is a cookbook. You say, what? I don't mean like recipes for, for dinner. I just mean like recipes in general. Surely you've heard sermons like this. Listen, God wants you to be successful, and the, the recipe is all in here. That if you just follow this book, your business will work out. What is the thing you want? There's a recipe in here. It's so simple. Until you actually start reading it. And then you're like, wait a minute, I, I don't see five keys to anything. <laughs> Where, where is that? Where is that recipe? Say, all right, all right. It's not a cookbook, but it is a little bit like a coffee table book. We can read for inspiration, right? I mean, all those refrigerator magnets had to come from somewhere. I mean, isn't this a collection of like refrigerator magnets, right? Okay, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans for a hope and a future. Hallelujah! Until you keep reading and you realize this is a letter to like a nation about to go into 70 years of exile under Babylon, one of the most wicked and cruel master tyrant empires of the ancient world. And you're thinking, some good plan of a hope and a future. God, you got a weird sense of humor. Like I, I didn't read about that punishment and exile stuff. I just thought hope and a future meant like I was going to get that job I was applying for. So after a while, you realize, okay, the Bible is not a coffee table book because you can't just sort of flip through this like you would a coffee table book and be like, oh, isn't this great? Oh, look at that. Psalm 137. Blessed is the one who dashes the babies of the Babylonians upon the rocks. (laughs) Just Praise God. I feel so inspired. I love this book. No, it's not a coffee table book. 
So, okay, okay, I, I, I know. Now, I, you know, charismatics love this one. It's a magic book. Charismatic. <laughs> I can pick on charismatics because this is the tradition I grew up in that I'm still recovering from in some ways. But, <laughs> but, but we like this because, because we know that you can remind God of his word. God, you said... So it's a magic book that if only I would have the right incantations and the right spells, then I can control my life. That actually I can use this Bible like a magic book that if only I <laughs> found the right you know, sort of incantation, I can go... <sighs> and if I say this three times and then give a gift to the guy on TV, sorry, then I will get my healing. <laughs> But it doesn't work. And it doesn't work that way. In fact, you, you, you would miss out on the very real tension that the Bible presents in its own story of the people of God. That one of the Old Testament's central cases against God, so to speak, is God, hello, doesn't seem to be working out. We believe there's no God but you. We believe that we're your people. But check out this stuff here with the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians. Like, uh. So maybe you say, okay, the, maybe the, the fifth way we kind of maybe misread it is as a rule book. So, well, silly charismatics. It's not a magic book. It's a rule book. This book is full of commands. Why do you think it's so thick? I love that one, you know. God cares about it. Why do you... So, okay, all right, so God in this view is, is like this sort of angry principal or headmaster, you know, and this is the student manual of rules that nobody ever reads. So, okay, all right, if, if it's a rule book, and this is what the world throws back at us, say, so, well, if it's a rule book, how come y'all eat bacon? It's just delicious. <laughs> You see, we, we get caught in our own lies here, don't we? We're like, this is, this is God's commands. Baloney. You don't treat it like a rule book. You don't. And if you did, you've you got to be honest. We haven't always figured out how to make sense of this or that. I want to say to you this morning that there is a different lens you can use for the Bible as a whole. Now, Evan's been teaching our Sunday school class about the Bible, and he's been doing a fantastic job outlining specific genres and how to read these books differently than these books, and all of that stuff really matters. But this morning, I want to zoom out and say there's one big picture here, and that is to see the Bible as drama, as a big narrative, or if you prefer, a story with a capital S, one of those giant stories. See, I am convinced that we need to immerse ourselves in the narrative of Scripture before looking for the imperatives. I'm keep that up there and let you chew on this for a moment. Soak in the story before you start looking for the rules. Catch the big strokes. Where is this thing going? What does it say to us about God? What does it say to us about what it means to be his people? Look, that doesn't make troublesome texts disappear, but it does help you catch the big sweep of the story. 
I'm not saying this will be the, the, you know, put these lenses on and all of a sudden it'll all make sense. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying it does help to catch that this works in a big story. Several people have mapped out different ways of plotting out the story. Um, and, and Eugene Peterson has a, has a way of doing this that I think is really remarkable. He's got a thin little book called The Invitation, A Simple Guide to the Bible. You can find it wherever you buy books. It's a, it's a good little thin a little thing that, that, that sets this up for you. But these five acts that I'm going to, to share this morning come from there. And again, this isn't unique to Peterson e- either. It's, it's a, very, um, a very often repeated way of viewing the great redemption narrative in the Bible. Act one is creation. Act one is creation. It's interesting because we approach the creation stories with... 20th century questions, don't we? What do we want to know in the 20th century? Is it creation or evolution? Ooh, that evil word, you know, it even has evil in it, you know, evil, not really. <laughs> and we want to know, did God make the world or did this, did this just happen? But when these stories were being told and passed down and being written, nobody was asking the question, did God They all thought some god or some gods made this. In fact, as an interesting exercise, you should read some of the ancient creation mythologies. Read the one about where the gods have a war and the one rips out the intestines of another and flings it and there's the moon. It's a real delightful bedtime story (laughs) for your kids. One of the oldest creation mythologies is the Enuma Elish. It's an Akkadian myth. Again, another story of War among the gods. It's into this world that the Moses version of this creation story appears. Imagine that. Imagine that in a world where everyone is convinced that this whole world was the result of conflict among the gods, that really this, this, this sort of thing was kind of an accident or bragging rights, neither of which make us feel very good about ourselves. And it's into this world that all of a sudden this story emerges and says, no, in the beginning was not the gods, but in the beginning there was God. And in the beginning this God created the heavens and the earth. And, and, and it, the question was not, did God create? We all know something up there made this happen. The question is, what is this God like and why did he do this? And when you see act one of this story in response to that, what you see the, 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 the storytellers telling us is this God created the heavens and the earth on purpose and with pleasure. He looks at it. He calls it good. Whatever else we read into this story, we can't miss that act one is a picture of a God who delights in making this. And this story stands in stark contrast to these other stories that are saying, well, you know, this, this squabble happened in that. Which is why, which is why, listen, which is why in, in so many of the pagan religions, you have the activity of the gods affecting activity of humans. So when the gods are angry, there's floods and famines. But in the Old Testament, you often see the reverse, that when humans sin, God comes looking. That it's not that this activity of the gods spills down into the lower level, but rather that our very activity draws the attention of the God of heaven. Think of that. It's a remarkable difference. A remarkable difference. 
that this God who sits on his throne creates on purpose and with pleasure, delights in it, and is moved by it. I want to issue a correction to what I said last week. I, I don't know how many of you caught it, but I said this, this line. I said, we won't know our belovedness until we confess our brokenness. That's not, that's not quite right. It's true that we won't know the depth of our belovedness until we confess our brokenness and see that God loves us even in our brokenness. But do you know you are beloved because he made you? That actually your belovedness predates the fall. Your belovedness predates the foundation of the world, that when God dreamt of this world and when God dreamt of you and when God saw you, there is this abounding joy and love. George Marsden, a historian that sums up Jonathan Edwards, talks about this explosion of joy that comes out into creation, that what we see is the triune God with so much love and delight within the God that it explodes outward joyfully into creating a world. That's the very opposite of cutting some God's intestines and flinging it and calling it the moon. It's the very opposite of that. So act one sets us up to see a good God making the world and taking delight in it. But act two follows very quickly after it. It's what we call the fall. Now, among the many things that we could say about the fall, I think maybe it's helpful to see it this way because it's a very Jewish idea to think of Blessing and shalom as wholeness and togetherness. Things being together and whole. Nothing missing, right? Nothing broken. And yet the fall is the very picture of the anti-shalom, of things coming apart. So how does the Genesis storyteller tell us the story of the fall? He shows us things coming apart. He shows us humans and God coming apart. He shows us male and female coming apart apart, turning against one another. He shows us the ground, the earth, and humans coming apart. Instead of working together, they're going to be working against thorns and sweat. Someday we'll talk about how work was not a pre-fall idea, but the labor and futility attached to work is a consequence of the fall. So going to your job is not because there was a fall. Doggone fall, I wouldn't have to have a job. You know? no, no. <laughs> we were all made with a purpose. But the fact that work is sometimes fruitless and difficult, that's the result of the fall. The fact that the the work of our hands doesn't always respond to our hands is the result of the fall. The, The earth is fractured from the people who were made to cultivate it. The ones who were meant to make the earth bountiful and flourish, now the earth kind of rebels against it and says, you will not cultivate me, as if, you know. And then in Genesis 4, you see brother against brother that there is this this relationship between Cain and Abel fractured. Very quickly, you see the whole world coming apart. And there are many ways to read the story of Babel in Genesis 11, but one of the ways to read it is that even human society and culture now gets fragmented and fractured because the only thing being worse than fractured by sin is being united in rebellion against God. And God says, whoa, let me let sin work its way all the way to the fracturing of human cultures and society because then I can start with a redemptive plan. But if you're united in your rebellion, this is going to forever doom you in something. That's one way to read this. But see, if 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 you pay attention to what the storytellers are doing, they get very quickly... Genesis 1 through 11 covers a whole sweep of time very quickly. And then all of a sudden you get to Genesis 12 and what happens to the story? It slows down. 
We spent 11 chapters talking about creation and fall and all these generations and Noah and Abraham. And you're like, wow, amazing. And then all of a sudden you get to Genesis 12 and there's the call of Abraham and the story dramatically slows down. Now for a whole bunch of chapters, you're going to learn about one family. And then you're going to learn about that family's descendants and the nation that comes from it. And the whole rest of the Old Testament is the story of this one people. And so Act 3 is Israel. Genesis 12, we heard it in our Old Testament reading. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred to your father's house to the land. I'll show you. Skip down with me to verse 3. I'll bless those who bless you and make him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all. If you were to underline in your Bible, you would underline that phrase, in you all. Abraham was chosen not for the sake of himself, but for the sake of all. All family. Here, the storyteller wants us to know that from the beginning, God's plan was not just to rescue one people, but to rescue all peoples. That he was going to start with one family because you have to start somewhere. But through this one family, he was going to rescue who? All families of you. See in this words, hear in this word, bless, hearing at the echoes of God saying, through you, Abraham, I'm going to find a way to put everything back together again see in this word bless God's covenant God starting his redemptive work and saying I'm going to put it all back together again a couple things to notice about this because most of us go creation fall Jesus church and they're like woohoo done wow and then we wonder why we don't want to read the old testament it's like well, what's all that stuff anyway I don't know you know what's amazing about this story is that God chooses to rescue his world by working within it. Within it. He doesn't send an angel. He calls a human. He calls a man. He doesn't send something from out there and says, okay, Superman, I'm sending you into the earth to rescue these. Yeah. Like the Superman movie. No, he, he says, I'm starting with one man, one family from within it. Because God always works his redemption from within our messes, not from outside it. Now, if you follow the story of the Old Testament, you're like, well, if I am correct, though, Glenn, like the Old Testament doesn't end so well. Yeah, it's true. One picture of this is the book of Judges. The book of Judges is, is a remarkable story because you, it follows, in our Bibles anyway, it follows the book of Joshua and and the Jewish scriptures, by the way, had different ways of categorizing books. They had the Torah and then the prophets and then the writings. It's very different than our categories of like history, poetry. You know, it's, it's not like that. There really is no category of history. And that's, that's a whole other class. Uh, not that this is class, but... Well. But judges, you have this hope. Okay, now the people of God are in the land. This should be the moment in the story where you say, and they lived... Happily ever after. Hallelujah. But it's not. In fact, by the end of the book of Judges, you see a Levite who can't stay pure. You see judges who don't know how to execute justice. That even, that there are evildoers who are doing horribly evil things. And yet the ones who are supposed to execute justice are just as implicated in the evil. Does that remind you of our world? And so you end the book of Judges and you're thinking... Who is going to make this right? This thing is a mess. Here I thought the people of God were the answer. And 
they're not. They're kind of messed up. And then you, 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 know, you finally get to the great king, David. We, we know more about his life story than any other character in the Old Testament, right? And you get, because of beginning with a boy and all of this stuff, and you, get to, you follow David's life and kills Goliath, he unites the clans, he becomes king. Bill, you're thinking, yes, now it starts. And then there's this Bathsheba thing, and you're like, come on. <laughs> Who can execute justice? Who can be righteous enough to rule who can save the people of God? And you understand the dilemma. What happens when the people who are supposed to save the whole world need saving themselves? What happens when Batman is dead? Now, our, our superhero movies come close to these moments, right, where you're like, Batman, he's Gotham's hope, and then Batman's like, you know, kind of like broken leg or whatever, you know. Except in the movies, somehow, like, broken leg or not, he's, like, walking in and he can do it, you know? It's like, with one hand, I could, you know. But the Old Testament kind of takes us to this cliff of, like, you're scratching your head and you're thinking, who's going to do this? And now you're stuck with the, God's got a problem at the end of the Old Testament. The problem is, is he going to, A, back out on his promise to save the whole world, back out on his plan to save the whole world, and say, oh, my gosh, why did I say I was going to save this world? Let's just start a new one, right? Or problem B, if he is going to save the whole world and not give up on his plan, is he going to abandon his promise to use his people? Now, if you and I were writing this story, that's what we'd say. Well, if Batman's got a broken leg, bring in Superman. Where's the whole, where's the super friends, you know? Like, we'll bring them all in. The miracle of the gospel is that God does not abandon his plan. God does not forget his promise. God does not abandon his people. He doesn't scrap his plan. He doesn't forget his promise. He doesn't abandon his people. God does the unthinkable. He brings salvation through the very household of Abraham. Which is why Matthew's gospel opens with a genealogy, but it's a genealogy that traces Jesus all the way back to Abraham. Why? Because Matthew's writing to the Jews. And Matthew wants the Jewish people of God who are in severe doubt and disillusionment at the moment, wondering if God will finally do what he said he was going to do. Matthew wants them to know God does not forget. God doesn't scrap it. God's not going to forget you and use a different people. Matthew is saying, no, no, listen, this is way better than you thought. God himself will come and be king, but he's going to do it through the family that he chose way back when. You're like, what? Mind blown. How does he do this? And so act four is Jesus. Jesus arrives and he says, look, I am the fulfillment of everything Israel was supposed to be. This is why for us as the people of God, as the church, what we see, how we see the story of, of Israel is we see the story of Old Testament Israel being summed up and fulfilled in Christ. Not, it, 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 this is a whole nother thing. I think it's a mistake to kind of pit it on either side and to say, well, the church replaces Israel or Israel still matters, Zionism, blah, blah, blah. The New Testament doesn't do either of those options. The New Testament says the story of Israel comes to its climactic point in Christ. 
Jesus, in Matthew's gospel in particular, does all these things that reenact Israel's story. So Israel wanders in the wilderness for 40 years. How much time does Jesus spend in the wilderness? 40 days. Israel's tempted in the wilderness but cannot stay faithful. Jesus is tempted and stays faithful. All of a sudden, you scratch your head and you're reading Matthew's gospel and you're thinking, I think he's trying to tell us something. I think he's trying to tell us that Jesus is the true Israel, that Jesus in himself is the very people of God summed up in himself, bringing it to its rightful conclusion and then you're saying okay okay all right so what does this mean it means like the gospel reading said this morning jesus said all of the scriptures all these things speak of me the whole story has been pointing to me do you know this is why we stand during the gospel reading on sunday mornings it's not because uh, i don't know christians used to do that so we're going to do that sounds kind of cool we should stand you know We stand in the gospel reading because it's our way of acknowledging, even with our bodies, that Jesus is the Bible's central character, that Jesus is the lens that we understand all of Scripture through. And so when you're wrestling through something in the Old Testament, remember this, it is the word of God, but it is not God's last word on a subject. So, well, is Joshua God's word on genocide? Say, no, no, listen. Jesus is God's last word on violence. Jesus is the full, the word of God in flesh. So everything in scripture, we have to say, how does this point to Jesus? What happens to this as it comes through Jesus? Jesus is the one that reframes the story. One way to say this is that God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we do. That's what happens. Jesus shows up and he says, some of your visions of me are not quite right. Let me refine that for you. If you've seen me, you've beheld the Father. I am it. Some of your traditions, and I am what God is like. I am. John's gospel does all of that stuff. But it means for us that when you read the Bible, you read it, through this Jesus lens. One of the great ways, one of the great resources, honestly, is a children's Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's wonderful. I I think every adult should read it at some point. Go out and get the Jesus Storybook Bible because because what it does is it shows you how the Old Testament points forward toward Jesus. And all of a sudden, you don't read David and Goliath as saying, I too need to have courage. You You read David and Goliath, you say, I was like the scared Israelites wondering how we were going to defeat the enemy and Jesus shows up and achieves this great victory on our behalf as a representative of us oh is that why Jesus is called the son of David right yeah yeah. ding 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 and all the lights start going off and you realize Jesus just Jesus is Jesus the Bible's about Jesus it points to Jesus right but here's the amazing thing what Jesus does is to constitute a new people. So Act 5 is the new people of God. 
What Jesus does is to say, now into the world, now there is a new people of God that is a Jew plus Gentile people of God for all who are in Christ. And so our New Testament reading was the one in, in Ephesians where Paul is saying, listen, there was this great mystery that was not revealed to people in the past, but now has been made known. And you're thinking, Paul, what is it? It's that the Gentiles are, are now part of the family of God. In fact, all who are in Christ are part of this new people of God. And you're saying, what? And Paul says, actually, this is where the story was always going, that it wasn't about circumcision or an ethnicity or a race. It was always about faith. Remember, that's how it began with Abraham. This is Paul's whole argument in Galatians, that Abraham, by faith. And Paul says, listen, the ID badge that you belong, the ID badge that you're in the family has always been faith, but it, faith was made possible by grace and Paul's saying this is the story all along and so here we are now and Paul says look if your faith is in Christ you belong to this new people you belong to this I think this is where it begins to really hit home for us because we've been served this this lie by Maybe the late modern world, I'm not sure exactly where it comes from, but this lie that freedom is about being able to write your own story. That in the end, we want economic freedom, political freedom, all the freedom necessary to write my own story, right? And I want to tell you, if you haven't discovered it already, that's a lie. that what you and I need is much more than the freedom to write our own story. What we need is a story much bigger than ourselves. Because the truth is, we can all point to story, uh, examples of saying, I tried to write my own story, it didn't work so well. Or you would say, I thought I was writing my own story, but then this happened to me. And then this happened to me, and then this happened to me. And I didn't choose that, but it happened to me. And so, hey, Glenn, who's going to give meaning to my story now? Because I didn't choose that train wreck, and I didn't choose that divorce, and I didn't choose that death, and I didn't choose that. So who's going to write my story now? And all of a sudden you realize that this lie of the, 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 the um, uh, post-enlightenment world that we as humans are the architects of our own destiny, the authors of our own story, we, all of a sudden we realize, number one, if we were, it, that wouldn't be good news because we've made plenty of messes with our own story. And number two, it's simply not true because there's lots that it gets that happens to us and to our stories that we wouldn't have chosen. Lots of places around the world where you could think of the hardship or the tragedies and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. They didn't choose that. You're right, they didn't. And what the word of God invites us into is to say, listen, there is a big story. It's the story of God working within a broken world to put it all back together again. And God, through Jesus, invites you into this story. See, when you see the Bible this way, it's, your posture begins to change. You're no longer standing above the Bible trying to get meaning out of it. I love, I love hate when people say, and by love I mean hate, when people say, well, what did you get out of the Bible this morning? What did you get out of it? You know, it would be much better to say, where did you find yourself in the Bible today? Where did you find yourself? Where did you, you know what? I found myself in Jacob, the deceiver. I found myself in Ruth, the tragic 
woman who had all of life fall apart around her that she didn't choose that. You know what? I found myself in Matthew, the tax collector, who was stuck in an economic system that, that, that he was complicit in with injustice. You know what? I found myself in the woman caught in the act of adultery. You know what? I found myself in not what did you get out of the Bible, but where do you find yourself in the Bible? Yes, this story is all about Jesus, but that doesn't mean that you're not invited into it. Sometimes we're so zealous about saying, hey, it's not about you, it's not about you, it's not about you, and all of a sudden people say, well, then why am I here? And instead what the gospel says is, listen, it's not about you, it is about Jesus, but you know what Jesus is about? Jesus is about you. Jesus is about the glory of God. Jesus is about putting the people of God back together. Jesus is about putting the whole world together. In fact, the final chapters of the Bible are John's vision of Jesus saying, okay, and now I will make everything new again. And now heaven will come down to earth. Heaven and earth that were fractured will be put back together again. Paul says in Ephesians 1.10, there's going to be this great day where all things in heaven and on earth will be summed up in Christ. That in a nutshell, this is where the story's going. It's Jesus putting all things back together again in himself. And when you say yes to Jesus, you get a jump on that. You get a head start on that. Say, you know what? One day the world's going to be made right. But in Christ, I get a head start on that. And the head start is my heart gets to be made right. And the head start on that is me and God get to be made right. And the head start on that is me and these people that I didn't think I wanted as my family members are now a family together. See, the head start on Jesus setting the world right is all of us being set right with God and put into one family together. This is the story you're invited into. This is the story that is bigger than anything you could write. This is the story that is better than anything you could imagine. And some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, I, I, I hope this is true. Because my story is pretty messed up. And my story is pretty tragic and I don't know where there's meaning in it. And the gospel says, here is Jesus who came into the story to do for us what we could never do for ourselves so that we can now join in and say, God, really? You take a broken, messed up story and somehow fit it into yours? Yeah. Matthew's genealogy doesn't just start with Abraham. It also includes the stories of some very questionable women. Look through it. From Tamar to the wife of Uriah, a.k.a. Bathsheba, Rahab, Ruth, kind of threw herself at a guy literally. And then Mary, this teenager who's pregnant out of wedlock. What's Matthew saying? Women in a Jewish genealogy? Psh! What's more, non-Jewish women? There's a couple of them. Rahab. Ruth, sort of this half-Moabitess. What are you doing, Matthew? This is not how you write the story of God. And Matthew says, actually, it is how you write the story of God. The story of God always brings in people that who never thought they belonged. The story of God always finds a way to weave in people whose brokenness should have disqualified them. 
People whose mistakes should have been the last word of their story. Because of Jesus, that is never the last word of your story. Not your mistakes, not your brokenness, and behold, not even death. None of it is the last word of the story. The last word of the story is life and new creation.